Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. The weather is moderate for this time of year, but that won't last long. And when winter really does set in, times will be tough for homeless people living on the streets. We'll talk about how tough a little bit later. But first, it may strike you as ironic that during the height of school desegregation efforts half a century ago, when the civil rights movement was in full flower, private elite white southern schools were voluntarily desegregating when public schools were resisting integration. Our first guest has written a book on this subject titled Transforming the Elite, Black Students and the Desegregation of Private Schools. The author is Dr. Michelle Purdy, an assistant professor of education and arts and sciences at Washington University. Michelle, thanks for being with us. Thanks so much for having me, Great Don. Great to have a very interesting story that you've told here. Uh, what brought you to this particular research? A couple of things. So um, first, as an undergraduate at Washington University in St. Louis, I majored in educational studies and African-African-American studies and also began really pursuing an interest in, in history of education. So it was 20 years ago that I started really reading deeply into the history of education, the history of black education. Um, and then over the years, as I matriculated through undergrad and a master's in history at WashU. Um, I began to think about potential Ph.D. programs as well. And so I actually went back home to work at uh, St. Andrew's Episcopal School, which is the school I attended K through 12th grades. And while there, I thought about what we knew about school desegregation in the South. I thought about what we knew about black educational history in the South. And I realized we did not know a lot about the historically white elite private schools um, that had been established before the 1954 Brown versus Board of Education decision. Um, oftentimes in public school desegregation history, we only refer to private schools as the ones that were started in resistance mm -hmm. to the Brown decision. So I became intrigued to know who were the first black students to attend such schools as the one I went to growing up in other um, elite white private schools across the South, and how and why did those schools even decide to desegregate? Why focus on Westminster and Atlanta? So I pursued my Ph.D. in educational studies at Emory in Atlanta. And for a first-class paper, I, as my advisor, Vanessa Siddle Walker, would say, I began to kind of muck around. And so um, looking online um, to, to look at some of the historically white elite private schools in Atlanta, I saw that Westminster had its own archives and it had its own archivist. And so I began to investigate Westminster for class papers. And as I continued to work through different class papers and projects, it became evident that Westminster would be a powerful case study to examine the desegregation of elite, historically white elite private schools in the South. A, because of its historical position um, in Atlanta, in the independent school world, especially through its founding principal or headmaster, um, Dr. Bill Presley, who was a national independent school leader. He was one of very few Southern folks to lead independent schools nationally as part of the national associations. But then also presently, it's one of the most elite private schools in the South. So, Why did they happen to be as progressive as they were? I mean, they moved relatively quickly on this. They moved relatively quickly. Um, some would say in some ways they moved relatively quickly. Some might also make the argument that they could have moved even quicker. <laughs> um, and so, but I make the argument that there were three reasons why schools like Westminster that were not required legally to desegregate, um, to desegregate. And so one was the moral imperative of the civil rights movement. As you know, television brought the civil rights movement into everybody's homes. And so people could see um, exactly 
um, the oppressive nature of the Jim Crow South, um, you know, every evening on their televisions. Secondly, um, they did not want to be like these segregationist academies that were popping up all across the South in resistance to school desegregation. And third, there was a financial incentive. Uh, it was it was becoming evident that there were going to be challenges to tax exemption status that these schools had if they maintained discriminatory admissions policies. Mm-hmm. They also wanted to be in concert with schools outside of the South that were beginning to focus more on the recruitment and retention of black students. They wanted to be in concert with other historically white elite private schools outside of the South. There, there was a certain irony. There are several ironies, obviously, in, in these uh, stories. But the fact that the student body, the white student body at Westminster, basically were the offspring of people who took them out of public schools because <laughs> they, they didn't want these schools to be integrated or the kids going to schools with blacks. Right. Yeah. And so you have a mixture <clears throat> of folks at Westminster. You have some of the moderate uh, white leaders, um, children of moderate white leaders in Atlanta attending Westminster. You have some uh, children probably from long, um, you know, what we would call old money, right? Mm-hmm. And then also the enrollment numbers did um, increase at Westminster following the 1954 Brown versus Board of Education decision as mm-hmm. well. What was Atlanta like at the time with regard to race relations? Atlanta is, you know, the beacon of the New South, right? Mm-hmm. So Atlanta okay. at this time is home to a growing airport that we all know is now the world's busiest international airport, Hartsfield-Jackson Airport. It's home to Coca-Cola at this time. Robert Woodruff, who owns Coca-Cola, does not make a decision, or I should say Mayor Hartsfield at the time, does not make a decision without consulting Robert Mm -hmm. Woodruff of Coca-Cola. Atlanta was a pragmatic southern city. It said, the white leaders said, we're not going to allow hate to ruin our economic prosperity. Mm -hmm. But Atlanta's also home clearly right to our most well-known civil rights leaders, including Martin Luther Mm -hmm. King, Andrew Young at the time is in college at Morehouse. So you have civil rights activity happening in the midst of a city um, controlled by whites and also with a lot of input from black middle class folks who wanted to maintain a pragmatic approach um, to civil rights and to desegregation. Did the population in that area at that time realize what was going on at Westminster? And what, if so, what sort of a reaction was there to it? Right. So Kevin Cruz is one of the first authors who kind of um, takes us inside of thinking about civil rights and the relationship between civil rights and, and both uh, in class cleavages and white um, among white citizens. So, for example, he would make the argument that you had white middle and upper class uh, folks in Atlanta actually choosing to send their kids to places like Westminster, choosing to actually but still fight for civil rights in many ways because civil rights would not affect them. Mm-hmm. Desegregation would not affect them because they could send their children to Westminster. They had their own swimming pools. They didn't have to use the public swimming pools. They had their own cars, so they weren't using public transportation. So I think many were aware of the private school boom in Atlanta. The uh, white population as well, the black population was growing in Atlanta in the mid-20th century. So I do believe Atlantans were very much aware of what was happening um, in all types of schools in Atlanta. But kind of shrugging their collective shoulders. Is that what you're saying? What do you mean by that? By, by they, they had their own thing going, so they didn't worry too much about what was going on in the schools. They both worried about what was going on in the school. So in some ways, some of the same folks who sent their children to schools like Westminster were actually advocating for school desegregation in Atlanta, right? Because the state of Georgia, as soon as the Brown decision is passed, the state of Georgia legislature passes laws that says if any school desegregates, public school desegregates, 
we will close the school and you will not receive funding. We will actually move funding towards private schools. And those in Atlanta were very much aware of that and actually were activists against the notion of public schools closing. But some of those very (laughs) activists were sending their kids to schools like Westminster. Who were the first young blacks who attended Westminster? So I call them the fearless first, right? Mm -hmm. They were very much um, open to this idea, at least based on some of the research that I that I um, that I conducted, both in archives and oral histories. Their parents were looking for different options for their um, kids as well in terms of academics, in part because of how slow public school desegregation was happening. So we have a cadre um, of folks of young folks um, who were coming from middle. Um, working class and middle class black families. And so some of those first students include the McBay brothers, um, Michael and Ron McBay, Don Clark, Wanda Ward, Isaac Clark, not related to Don Clark. Um, And so those were some of the first students in the first couple of years, as well as Malcolm Ryder, who came from Norfolk, Virginia. At that time, Westminster had a boarding component. And so he actually was the first black student to board at Westminster. Were they specially selected Meaning, meaning, were they singled out somehow as being the, perhaps the most appropriate young people to come and make this uh, right. move? Um, I think they were singled out in ways in which um, some of their own teachers thought that Westminster would provide a really rich academic experience for them. So some of them, like Gennard Way, was actually encouraged by his teacher, Mr. D.P. Birch, to apply to Westminster, as well as Wanda Ward was also encouraged by Mr. D.P. Birch to apply. I think that um, they clearly could pass the admissions test. They had I- high IQ test scores and so singled out in the way in which they were deemed to believe to be academically able to um, thrive at a place like Westminster. You know, they said that when Jackie Robinson broke into baseball, he was selected to do that because he had the the, the kind of a personality who could react to the inevitable mm-hmm. criticism mm-hmm. of it. Were these kids in that category at all, do you think? Yes, I think uh, based on some of the some of the students came through a, um, a scholarship program called the Stafford Foundation, and, and through some of those um, interviews that they participated in, they clearly had um, a bit of wherewithal about themselves to be um, to know that this was a, a good opportunity again to to explore their academic interests. But they also seemed open to the idea of going to a different type of school. But they also didn't necessarily have the weight of the world on them as some of the other firsts that we know so very well through public school desegregation. I have to take a break momentarily, but as you say, they were courageous just to step into this particular minefield, potential minefield. We'll talk about what they uh, encountered when when they got there in just a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening to this St. Louis on the Air podcast supported by University College at Washington University with undergraduate and graduate programs part-time evening and online. University College at Washington University offering world-class education within reach. Well, we left before the break talking about these youngsters uh, who attended uh, Westminster in, in Atlanta. Um, well, it was nice of the school to invite them to attend, but once they got there, things weren't so easy for them. Not easy um, at all for some of them. And, um, you know, they 
the students were um, harassed verbally. They were harassed in ways in which um, physically they were harassed um, through um, taunts. Um, and so some of them really experienced um, very overt uh, racism and harassment. And others would say that they also felt the subtleties of racism. Mm-hmm. So this sense of never quite feeling like you belong in the in the school community. Did any of them drop out as a result of this? Yes. So the students I follow in the book um, graduated from Westminster. But in the first five or six years of school desegregation at Westminster, there were 35 black students to enter Westminster, but not all of those students continued at Westminster. What was the student population at the time? Um, around 1,000 or mm-hmm. so. It's know. a very very small percentage, obviously. Right. Yeah. Yep. I don't want to get too far ahead of the story, but uh, the, the youngsters that did graduate uh, actually distinguished themselves, did they not? They did. Post-graduation. So po- at the school and post-graduation. Mm-hmm. So at the school, they had academic accolades and extracurricular accolades, and some of them, you know, fervently spoke back to the racism at the school as well. Um, and then, you know, went on. Wanda Ward was uh, one of the first black women and women, period, to go to Princeton University. Mm-hmm. Malcolm Ryder went to Princeton. Michael McBay went to Stanford. Jannar Wade went to Morehouse College. So they went to some of the top colleges and universities around the country. What was going on uh, up north, if I may ask, mm-hmm. uh, with regard to those, those private schools uh, in New England, for instance? Right. So around the same time that um, Westminster is continuing to get um, in some ways, pressure to desegregate, and there are also there are more inquiries into schools like the Lovett School in Atlanta when the you know Lovett denies Martin Luther King the third admission to the school in 1963. At the same time, programs such as a Better Chance are beginning, and so those pro- that program, for example, really helped to recruit black students to some of the more elite northeastern um, private schools, including some of the most well-known boarding schools mm-hmm. as well. You mentioned earlier Dr. King. Um, mm-hmm. What was his approach to watching all of this happen? That was his town, after all. It was his town, after all. Um, you know, interestingly, part of the the narrative is that in the spring or winter, or spring of 1963, which is you know interesting because that's several months before the March on Washington. He and Coretta applied for Martin Luther III to go to the Lovett School, which at that time was affiliated with the Episcopal Church. Mm-hmm. Um, and Andrew Young and his wife applied for their daughters to go to Trinity, and there were also inquiries mm-hmm. into Westminster. And so, um, you know, their notion was that they weren't trying to cause a, a, a huge disturbance, but that they, you know, I believe they believed that Martin III um, could be academically successful at Lovett. Mm-hmm. Lovett ultimately denied Martin III admission. And as a result, split from the Episcopal Church. While all of this uh, w- was going on, obviously the, the country was in some turmoil as a result Very of Very much so. How, how yes. did that come into play with regard to Westminster and the young black students who were there right. at the time? So they are there, right? First year of school desegregation is 1967, 1968. So they are literally in their first year of attending this school when Martin Luther King is assassinated mm. on April 4th, 1968 in Memphis. Um, and so – there was no kind of real overt way in which the school – they don't recall any overt way in which the school actually gave attention to the death of King. Um, and so there were mixed reactions by some of the white students in the school that they experienced. So they're very much 
in the the throes of going to school as the civil rights movement is moving into the black power movement. Uh, I would ask the black alumni that I interviewed, I said, what, how are you all responding to black power? How are you responding to, you know, Maynard Jackson on the cusp of becoming mayor in Atlanta, the first black mayor? And they said, you need to talk to Michael McBay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so Michael, uh, who was severely harassed in his first year at Westminster, went on to become a political cartoonist and a columnist for the school newspaper mm-hmm. and really spoke to the ways in which race and racism were playing out at Westminster. Yep. You went to a school not unlike Westminster, correct? I went to a school um, not in the same – a very excellent school, but we certainly don't have the same endowment as Westminster. Mm -hmm. But I went to what is considered one of the top private schools, if not the top private school in the state of Mississippi, St. Andrew's Episcopal School. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And was that uh, completely or totally segregated or was it token? St. Andrews began in 1947 as – and it was an all-white student body. Mm -hmm. Um, I am told that the first black students entered in 1966. Mm -hmm. And so it was my brother's idea in many ways. He had gone to public school. He's six and a half years older than I am. And he came home at – in this middle of sixth grade asking if he could look at St. Andrews, that he had friends who were attending St. Andrews. And so we both – applied and we both were admitted. And so that's what began our experience there. What do you make of where we are now with all of this? We're in a lot of different, um, we have a lot of things to think about. First of all, we need institutions to really consider their, their racial past and to think about the ways in which that has permeated through the present and well, how will it affect their future. We need to think about school culture. So it's one thing for students for whom schools were not built in mind to go to those schools. But what is the culture that they're experiencing in those schools? We also need to think about the ways in which um, schools in general, right, um, are either segregated or not in the U.S. Currently in public schools, most white kids go to school with other white kids and most black and brown kids go to school with other black and brown kids. So the question, you know, remains, what does this mean um, where we are today in our public schools and also in our private schools? And interesting, our pri- some of these elite private schools tout diversity and inclusion, but yet we still find black students and other kids marginalized in different ways having some tough experiences mm-hmm. in these schools. You know, something that I've thought about is somewhat uh, given the situation here with the voluntary desegregation plan here right. in the city of St. Louis, mm-hmm. um, it, it seems to me that the St. Louis schools are pretty much still segregated. St. Louis public schools are very much still segregated. Mm-hmm. And in the county, there's also um, probably a bit more racial diversity in some pockets of mm-hmm. the county. But with the end of the voluntary desegregation program, those numbers, I suspect, will also go down. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, it. I don't know how much money was spent on gasoline moving kids around <laughs> to accomplish what hasn't really been accomplished. Right. And but there are many I think there's some there you know um Professor Jerome Morris at the University of Missouri St. Louis is is working on studies related to looking at the voluntary desegregation program here in St. Mm-hmm. Louis. And I think anecdotally right there's some who will say that they you know had good bit, had good experiences despite being bused mm-hmm. right outside of the city. I think others would have mixed results, right? Um, and I think we have to look at the kind of the at a systematic level, right, and a systemic level. What has the busing meant, um, and who gets bused and who does not get bused? Mm-hmm. And so I think there's still a lot of questions for us to consider. In going back to Westminster and and your story, uh, in the in the big picture, what what 
was the impact of, uh, of what went on there and in some of those other schools right. you've talked about? I think the impact was, <clears throat> was the beginning of changing the elite, right? The school, as I, the book is titled Transforming the Elite. They began, these young black students began <clears throat> to transform institutions that were designed for students, white students, to become in many ways enculturated into the power networks of the United States. So whether we're talking about historically white elite K through 12 schools or historically white colleges and universities, which, which were also being pushed by black students at this time, um, we're seeing the beginnings of um, African-Americans and other marginalized students laying claim to spaces that were not built with them in mind. And what would life be like for an African-American student at places like Westminster, uh, Westminster today? It's a good question. I think some students um, are wrestling with what that means. What does it mean to have, quote unquote, the privilege or the advantage of going to school like Westminster, while at the same time we see um, increased racist acts, um, especially in the last few years, when we see uh, the rise of the Black Lives Matter when black kids are still afraid of what it means to be pulled over by a police officer, I think they wrestle with that. I think they find the, you know, enjoy school life. Some of them do, but I think also some of them really wrestle with notions of what it means to be in such a space when so much inequality is still around them. Do you think in these schools they're still wrestling with the kind of harassment that the first group met? I don't think it's as overt but I do believe that there is a feeling of I do feel like some students feel like they don't quite belong. And I'm sure that there are ways in which comments are made in ways in which um, things get positioned in the ways in which topics are taught, uh, in which all students, especially African-American students and other students of color, do not feel completely like this space is mine. Mm-hmm. We still have a long way to go, don't we, Michelle? We still have a long way to go, Don. Now, how, are so. your, how are your kids? We only have a few seconds left. Yeah. In 15 or 20 seconds, how are your kids at WashU reacting to all of this? They are challenged. They are perplexed by um, our current state of the United States and the world. They want to know how I can make a difference. They want to know what has changed. But they also are very perplexed by just how deep um, inequality and oppression runs in the United States. We'll have to leave it there. Dr. Michelle Purdy, thank you so much for being with us. Washington University is your school. Her book is Transforming the Elite, Black Students and the Desegregation of Private Schools. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.